Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. The California man accused of attempting to murder a Supreme Court justice made his first court appearance today. This came just hours after he was arrested with a pistol near the home of the justice. The results of the election to recall San Francisco's district attorney are in. Our California reporter David Lamb spoke with one of the activists behind the historic recall. As primary election season continues throughout the country, a former U.S. congressman has pleaded guilty to election fraud. He also explained how he was able to get fraudulent votes added for certain candidates. Bishops in Colorado are calling out lawmakers who call themselves Catholic while supporting abortion. They're asking such lawmakers to refrain from getting communion. The House today moves to vote on major gun control legislation. This as families of Uvalde victims testify and the two parties clash over Second Amendment rights. The California man accused of attempting to murder Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh made his first court appearance today. This came just hours after the FBI said they arrested him with a Glock pistol and a tactical knife near the justice's home. Nicholas John Roski, who is 26, was accompanied by four U.S. Marshals during his arraignment today. According to court documents, Roski told officers that he was upset about the recent leak of the Supreme Court's draft decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. Roski is charged with attempted murder of a Supreme Court justice. When asked if he understood the charges, Roski said he thinks he has a reasonable understanding, but that he wouldn't say he's thinking clearly. He faces up to 20 years in prison. And over in California, San Francisco voters have recalled their district attorney, who's known for his progressive policies on crime. NTD's David Lamb speaks with one of the founders of the recall campaign. The results came in from the Department of Elections, and nearly 60% of voters voted to recall the San Francisco District Attorney, Chase Boudin, out of office. Now, many Californians are unhappy about his policies, saying that he's too soft on crime and pro-criminal. Now, earlier I spoke to Richie Greenberg, a political commentator and also the one who led the campaign to recall Chase Boudin. Well, no, I wasn't surprised. We were, uh, we were happy, you know. Uh, but um, the thing is that um, we were seeing a very high amount of advertising against us by Tressa Bodine's side in the last month, and especially in two weeks before uh, Election Day. A lot of negative uh, attacks, you know. And so that was a concern, of course. And so ultimately, when uh, the first report from Department of Elections came through at quarter to uh, quarter to nine last night, eight forty-five, uh, we succeeded, and so that was both a sigh of relief and uh, you know a bit of joy. Now, this uh, recall has been labeled as a Republican recall, and you know there's and you've also said that it's nonpartisan. Um, what do the results say? You know, like is that true or not? Well, absolutely not true. You know, this was. One of those scare tactics that Bodine and his camp were using to try and persuade voters that uh, voting yes to recall him was siding with the Republicans, that this was somehow not a legitimate um, 
uh, democratic process even, the votes to recall him were spread out across the entire city, uh, regardless of whether the, the areas were more progressive and liberal or moderate or even slightly conservative. So complete false narrative. Do you think the next DA will be any different? Oh, absolutely. You know, Tressa Bodine never had any experience as a prosecutor. There is this loophole here in, in San Francisco that uh, you don't need to have prosecutor office experience in order to run as a candidate for the DA. His intention was to never really prosecute criminals, and, um, and the results are, are what we see. Um, and that's all for me. Uh, do you have any last thoughts you want to share? Well, the, the main thing about this whole recall is that last night when the results came in, um, I didn't think that we should be celebrating that much. Um, this is a bittersweet victory. It's a, uh, the recall is something that we should never have had to do. That, um, you know, Bodine was not qualified at all to be a district attorney and he shouldn't have been able to run. He shouldn't have been allowed to run. So um, we have to look at what happened. You know, people died, people were injured, people were beaten, um, stores were looted, businesses wrecked as a result of Bodine. So of course, I'm happy, we are happy, but it's a bittersweet victory. Greenberg says a lot of Boudin's policies are based on his upbringing as both of his parents served time in jail. Now I asked Greenberg, what are the chances of Boudin being re-elected if he decides to run again? He says, not very likely. I reached out to Boudin's office for comments, but he didn't get back to me by press deadline. David Lamb, NCD News, California. And another election-related news, voters in seven states, including California, cast their ballots yesterday in the primaries. NTD's Melina Weiskup has those results for us. California voters have cast their ballots on key races for state and federal elections. California's Governor Gavin Newsom is set to face Republican nominee Brian Dalle. Governor Newsom successfully defeated a recall last year and has a good chance of winning re-election. And some of California's House seats were on the ballot. A special election to fill Devin Nunes' seat is likely to be filled by a Trump-endorsed candidate, Connie Conway. And California's 40th district will be a close race for midterms. Republican Congresswoman Young Kim will face Democrat candidate Asif Mahmood. Mahmood won around 5,000 more votes than Young did in the primary. In Iowa, Republican Senator Chuck Grassley will face Democrat primary winner Michael Franken. And in New Jersey, the result this November is expected to play a part in deciding the majority party in the House of Representatives. At least four sitting Democrats are anticipating tough challenges from their Republican opponents this fall. One of those Democrats is Congressman Tom Malinowski, who's set to face Republican primary winner Thomas Keene Jr. And in New Mexico, progressive Gabriel Vasquez will be vying to flip a seat that's now held by Republican Congresswoman Yvette Harrell. And from last night's primaries, there are some toss-up races that we should be looking closely at come November. Those are areas in New Mexico, New Jersey, and California. It's important to keep in mind that Democrats hold a very slim majority in the House right now, and Republicans would just need a net gain of five seats in order to take control of the chamber. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskopf, NTD News. As primary election season continues throughout the country, a former U.S. congressman has pleaded guilty to election fraud. 
He admitted to bribing election judges to add votes for certain candidates. NTD's Jason Perry has the story. On Monday, former U.S. Congressman Michael Myers, a Democrat from Pennsylvania, pleaded guilty to several election fraud charges stemming from 2014 through 2018. Myers, who is 79 years old, admitted to bribing an election judge in Philadelphia to illegally add votes for specific candidates, including candidates for state and federal offices. Myers would receive payments from the candidates by cash or check, and then he would send a portion of the funds to former election judge Dominique DeMuro. And DeMuro would then add fraudulent votes for Myers' clients. Both men supported fellow Democrat candidates. Myers also admitted to conspiring to commit fraud with another former election judge in Philadelphia, Marie Barron, another Democrat who also pleaded guilty. This isn't the first time the former representative has run into trouble with the law. Back in 1980, Myers was caught in an FBI sting operation in which he was videotaped accepting a bribe from a fictitious Arabian company. The special agent in charge of the FBI's Philadelphia division said, decades ago, he valued a fake sheikh's bribes more than the ethical obligations of his elected federal office. This time around, he valued his client's money and his own whims more than the integrity of multiple elections and the will of the Philadelphia voters. Myers faces up to 60 years in prison and a fine of up to $1.2 million. He is scheduled to be sentenced on September 27th. Jason Perry, NTD News. Catholic bishops in Colorado are asking state lawmakers who support abortion to refrain from receiving Holy Communion. They sent an open letter to Colorado politicians yesterday. The Archbishop of San Francisco has already barred House Speaker Nancy Pelosi from getting communion. Colorado's Reproductive Health Equity Act was signed into law in April. It allows abortions up until birth for any reason which makes it one of the most permissive abortion laws in the nation. The bishop said in the letter, it causes us profound sadness and distress to know that some Catholic legislators voted for this and that voting for the bill was, quote, participating in a gravely sinful act and that those Catholic politicians who have done so have very likely placed themselves outside of the communion of the church. The bishops have asked the lawmakers to voluntarily refrain from receiving Holy Communion until they repent publicly. And more on birth rates from another angle. Elon Musk has recently brought the issue of population decline to the forefront, tweeting that population collapse is the biggest threat to civilization. How could the decline of population impact our lives, and how big could the impact be? NTD interviewed a UK-based economist to find out more. So it came on domain. Manoj Pradhan, economist and co-author of The Great Demographic Reversal, tells NTD that population loss will bring dramatic economic, political, and societal changes. He points to the current labor shortage in the U.S. and says it offers a peek into the future if population decline continues. And over the next 20 or 25 years, what is likely to happen is that the manufacturing complex of the global economy is going to see a shrinking labor force. What has really brought things to a head is that we're getting a little peak of that future because of the shortage of labor that we're seeing in the advanced economies, particularly in the United States. And the result of that, as we're seeing today, is likely to be inflation, it's likely to be higher wages. Pradhan says apart from a stagnant economy, there will also be public policy issues related to an aging population. 
As the proportion of the elderly grows, there will be overall more people with health conditions, and they will have to depend on the government to take care of them. Whether it's the UK, whether it's the Scandinavian economies, whether it's Japan or the United States, has a significant increase in the forecasted profile of debt. And a lot of that increase in the debt has to do with providing healthcare services, providing pensions, and in general looking after an aging population. The Economist says the problem of labor shortage and aging population is not only impacting advanced economies like the U.S., but also manufacturing powerhouses like China, and that we are not expecting a dramatic change in people's attitudes towards having children. The stress of looking after an increasingly elderly population I think is already beginning to stress out people, not just in China. If you look at Korea, if you look at places like Germany and Scandinavian economies, all of these economies are getting older very, very, very quickly. For a country to sustain its population, women must have on average 2.1 children. In 2020, the U.S. fertility rate was 1.6, the lowest in America's history, and a sharp decline from 3.7 in 1960. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. Coming up, milk banks are one solution to the formula shortage. NTD's Eileen Eng learns how, many, how one company in Northern California operates. And another shortage that could lead to serious consequences. Hospitals say they're running out of contrast dye that's used for CT scans. And that means thousands of patients will have to wait longer to get their results. Stay tuned to find out more. When you look at TV networks in America, a soundbite and fight-it-out culture prevails on news and commentary programs. As a Canadian, I'm fascinated with America, and I wanted to offer American thought leaders an opportunity to share their thoughts in a deep-dive format where we can explore their ideas together. And so American Thought Leaders was born. The world's most brilliant thinkers believed that open discourse was the key to greatness. However, all around the world, we see that discourse is being stifled and political agendas have subverted media. The Epoch Times launched its Global Thought Leaders program to bring back this great tradition of free thought. As the host of American Thought Leaders, every week I interview some of the most intriguing minds on the most pressing issues of our time. Be sure to check out our new episodes every week. Amid the formula shortage, mothers are looking for other ways to make up for the lack of milk. Some turn to milk banks for help. NTD's Eileen Ang visited one in Northern California to learn more about how it works. Mother's Milk Bank in San Jose started in 1974 to feed premature infants. It is the oldest operating milk bank in North America. The milk is being delivered by FedEx now. So this is milk from moms that are donating. The donor's milk is shipped and dropped off at this milk bank where it gets treated and processed for other babies. The nonprofit is part of an organization called Human Milk Banking of North America, which establishes the standard for milk banks. 
the donors go through an extensive screening, similar to blood donation, and they get tested for infectious disease. Uh, the other thing that we do is we get consent from the obstetrician, so the mom's physician and the baby's physician, to say that the mom is healthy and the baby's healthy, uh, and then she's approved to donate her milk. They mix the milk from three to five donors to homogenize nutrients. The milk is put into bottles and heated in a water bath in the pasteurization room. Uh, so the bottles are submerged and uh, that ensures that the, the temperature uh, of the water bath in, uh, envelops the entirety of the bottle. The milk is brought up to 62.5 degrees Celsius and left in the water bath for 30 minutes. Then it's transferred into an ice bath to quickly cool down. The bottles are labeled, sealed, and put in the freezer. They are packed with dry ice so the milk stays frozen during shipping. When treated this way, pasteurized human milk has a shelf life of 12 months. Batista said they usually see milk shortages during the holidays and the new year. Shipping delays and weather conditions contribute to the shortage, but they are not short now. So we're actually seeing a, a, a big increase in interest of donor milk. Uh, in light of the formula shortages, uh, and we're also seeing an increase in the, the uh, women who want to donate milk also. So it's, it's good uh, that we're seeing that uh, interest in donating milk, and we want to make sure that our inventory keeps up with the increase in demand that we're seeing. During shortages, they would prioritize hospitals first over outpatients. About 60% of their milk goes to hospitals. Donor milk is mostly for medical reasons, but mothers may also order if their milk is not available or not enough, or the baby's illness would need donor milk to help it. Human breast milk has a lot of bioactive components in it that aren't contained in formula, and those bioactive uh, components and nutrients are beneficial for all babies. Most of this milk bank's donors are from California, but the milk is donated across the country. From the lack of formula to another shortage that's perhaps not yet on your radar. Contrast dye. It's a key component for crucial medical imaging tests. But because of supply chain problems, hospitals are now forced to ration supplies. Mandy Gaither has more on the effect this is having on patients. It's used in CT scans, a dye that helps reveal when there's a problem. In my world, this is a brain scan without dye. Now take a look at what happens when you inject dye into the bloodstream. That area in the upper right corner, that's a big white mass, turns out to be a type of brain tumor known as a meningioma. May have been hard to see otherwise. It's called IV contrast and can be injected into a patient's bloodstream to highlight different structures. But there's a shortage of the liquid and it's leading to hospital rationing and patient backlogs. It's thousands of patients whose, whose scans are probably delayed as a result of this. They'll get their scans ultimately, but delayed months, you know, that can mean a big difference. A hospital association estimates around half of hospitals in this country get contrast dye from GE Healthcare's plant in Shanghai to perform about 20 million scans a year. However, that facility was forced to close during the city's two-month zero-COVID lockdown. While the facility is now getting production back up to speed, it may be weeks before that supply reaches hospitals. It's going to create a, a pressure on the healthcare system to diversify the supply chains. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration says the supply is expected to continue increasing through June, with a return to stocking levels in July 2022. We certainly hope that shortage resolves itself sooner rather than later. 
And in North Carolina, veterans who are exposed to contaminated drinking water at the military base camp Lejeune may soon have the right to seek restitution from the federal government. That's after years of waiting. Here are the details. The Camp Lejeune Justice Act is expected to pass the Senate this week. It would allow anyone who lived or worked at Camp Lejeune between 1952 and 1987 for at least 30 days and who was exposed to its contaminated water to file a claim against the federal government. Uh, and we drank tons of water and we bathed in it, but we had no idea about the, uh, the toxic water. Former Marine Dwight Cross was posted to Camp Lejeune in 1987. Even when I went through my diagnosis of multiple myeloma, um, it wasn't until after my diagnosis that I found out about the, uh, the toxic water. And it was supposed to be about four months of chemotherapy followed by a stem cell um, transplant. And in my case, it ended up being about a year of uh, chemotherapy. Evidence of contaminated groundwater at Camp Lejeune was first found in the early 1980s. Further testing revealed that the contamination came from leaking fuel tanks and an off-base dry cleaner. This new bill would prohibit the federal government from asserting specific immunity from litigation in response to any potential lawsuit. We served everybody, and now it's the uh, government's time to, to serve us. Audrey Williams Pride lived at Camp Lejeune with her husband for two years. She blames the toxic water for causing her stillbirth in 1986. I was not aware at the time that the water was toxic, contaminated. Um, that's where a lot of the anger comes in with me because I was not made aware and it has been more likely than not that my baby died because of the toxic water at Camp Lejeune. On Tuesday, President Biden signed into law nine bipartisan bills that will honor and improve care for veterans. They address health hazards that service members face, such as burn pits, jet fuels, and toxic smoke. And now to gun control. What's the fate of gun control legislation? The House today readies for a vote as a high-profile hearing unfolds. Uvalde victims, parents, and a student survivor testify before Congress. NTD's Iris Tao has more. I left my daughter at that school, and that decision will haunt me for the rest of my life. Recounting the day of the Uvalde school shooting, the parents of a 10-year-old victim are urging Congress to act. Somewhere out there, there is a mom listening to our testimony, thinking I can't even imagine their pain, not knowing that our reality will one day be hers unless we act now. In a Wednesday hearing, lawmakers heard from those who suffered during mass shootings. As parents call for banning semi-automatic rifles and raising the minimum age to buy guns, a student survivor also spoke out. Do you feel safe at school? Why not? Because I don't want it to happen again. And you think it's going to happen again? And Democratic lawmakers say their gun control measures are part of the solution. These weapons have no place in our communities, no civilian needs an assault rifle, and the Second Amendment does not protect the right to own a weapon of war.
The hearing came just prior to a Democrat-led House vote on two pieces of gun control legislation. They would raise the minimum age to buy a semi-automatic rifle to 21 and enact nationwide red flag laws. Leading up to the voting, Republican House leaders urged their members to vote no. And if the leftist policies in these gun-grabbing bills worked, then New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, these cities would be safer than Mayberry. They said such policies would infringe on people's Second Amendment rights and will not, in fact, work. Criminals prey on mm -hmm. law-abiding citizens, and the gun laws are just one more advantage for the criminals over the law-abiding citizens. And that is, that is the endemic flaw with all of this legislation. But Congressman Massey told me that one thing he might work with Democrats on is to enhance background checks by including juvenile criminal records in a federal database. Meanwhile, upon passing the House, the legislative package by House Democrats is unlikely to pass in the Senate. But senators on both sides did say they are trying to reach a consensus on a different and more tailored package by the end of this week. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. And moving on now to the issue of flavored tobacco. The city of Los Angeles recently took major steps toward banning the sale of such products. As some organizations celebrate, others are not too thrilled. NTD's Jackie Rios spoke to a smoke shop owner to hear his reaction on the ban. With an exception for hookah lounges amid certain conditions, the Los Angeles City Council has voted to ban the sale of flavored tobacco and hookah tobacco in Los Angeles. We talked with one tobacco store owner in the city regarding his thoughts on this new ban. Marco Isa has been in the business for 20 years with two smoke shop businesses in the Los Angeles area. But I've seen so many products like, uh, for example, beer is being sold with so many flavors. The other day I went to the market and I bought some Bud Light with strawberry flavor. All the time they try to affect the smoke shop business. You know, I think as a person, if you're 18 years old, I think you could make a choice. Then they change it to 21. I mean, they're always making the business hard for the smoke shop. He's one of the retailers whose business may soon be influenced by the ordinance banning flavored tobacco products. Every single pack outside and inside, it has advertised. As you can see, you know, big warning. Every single package. If Alice Mayer signs the ordinance, it will ban the city's 4,500 tobacco retail stores from selling flavored tobacco, including hookah tobacco. But existing smoke lounges will still be able to sell hookah products for on-site or off-site consumption. According to the California Attorney General's office, in California alone, 36.5% of high school students reported using tobacco products. Of those, 86.4% reported using a flavored product. And according to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the tobacco industry has aggressively marketed menthol products to young people and African Americans, especially in urban communities. Marcos disagrees. Tell the truth, I don't believe so. The menthol itself, I used to smoke menthol cigarettes, Camel Crush, and uh, I just, uh, I prefer a menthol over a regular cigarette. But I don't think uh, I will stop smoking uh, if the mental disappear. I'll find some alternative. 
The National Association of Tobacco Outlets previously addressed the council with concerns stating, legal age adults who currently buy these products will simply find other sources. The mayor has until July 1st to sign off on the ordinance. If that happens, the ban will take effect January 1st, 2023. Jackie Rios, NTD News, Los Angeles. We'd like to take a moment to thank everyone who's sent us news tips and feedback. We greatly appreciate the time you've put aside to give us your thoughts. And you can continue to do so at eveningnews at ntd.com. It's all been very encouraging and informative. And coming up, air travel is picking up in anticipation of summer, but you might not be able to get to every destination across the U.S. And in gymnastics, Olympic gold medalist Simone Biles is one of nearly 90 women who are suing the FBI in excess of a billion dollars for not doing their job. NTD's Dave Martin details their reasons. That and more coming up. As summer travel season kicks off, major airlines are planning to hire the most pilots ever in a single year. But there just aren't enough pilots to go around. So what happens next? NTD's Phil Zoe has the story. Summer is around the corner. That means air travel is back. Um, as an airline employee, I can fly standby. And it's gotten to the point where I can't even fly standby anymore because all the flights are full. Airlines are expecting 10% more passengers this summer compared to the last one. But there's a problem. Uh, one of the things that you're seeing right now is mass retirements at the airlines. Over the next nine years or so, you're looking at approximately a 50% reduction in the, in the pilot workforce at the major airlines. Josh Yoder is co-founder of U.S. Freedom Flyers. He's also a commercial pilot at a major airline. I think one of the things you're going to see is a, is a drop in the frequency of service, especially to smaller places, you know, um, out, outlying airports, um, you know, where you may have had three or four flights a day, it may go down to one or two. 30 airports across U.S. cities have already lost more than half their departure times compared to before the pandemic. Um, you're going to see skyrocketing ticket prices, which we're already seeing. And that has to do with a couple of things. It has to do with fuel prices, which are obviously adding to the expense of the flight. Um, and then and then obviously demand as well as demand goes up and flights are full, you're going to see a, a massive rise in, in ticket prices, I believe. We've already seen, you know, increases of upwards of 30 percent. Major airlines are trying to hire 10,000 pilots this year alone, making it the busiest hiring year yet. Phil Zoe, NTD News. And now to another supply issue. As the Biden administration pushes for a drastic energy transition, proponents argue renewable energies like wind and solar are cheaper. Is it true? NTD's Jessica Beatty takes a look at a recent study to learn more. As the world rushes to drop fossil fuels and transition to renewable energy like wind and solar, three researchers say not so fast. They say you can't just look at emissions, you have to look at the entire value chain. Their recent study found that it's actually more expensive to produce energy with wind and solar than with conventional fuels. The authors looked at several cost factors, including the cost of building, fuel, operating, transportation, storage, backup, emissions, recycling, space, equipment lifetime, and how many materials go into each system. They found that way more materials are needed for solar, hydropower, and wind compared to coal, natural gas, and nuclear. They also looked at another important concept, energy return on investment. The EROI ratio measures energy inputs compared to energy outputs. The authors, citing Ewan Mern's work, said modern life requires a minimum EROI ratio of 5 to 7. 
But they pointed out that most solar and many wind installations are lower than that and are not efficient enough to support society. Co-author Lars Chernikow is an energy economist and commodity trader. At a SAGE talk last month, he said, quote, If the world were today to go 100% wind, solar, and biomass, we would not be sitting here. There would not be enough energy. We'd go into energy starvation. And that's what you start to see now in the market. He doubted the current pathway to more wind and solar electricity is environmentally viable, calling them, quote, the least energy efficient. We reached out to the Energy Department for comment, but didn't immediately hear back. The study concluded with suggestions for a revised energy policy, saying energy policy should not favor any of the energy sources, but should support all energy systems to avoid energy shortage or energy poverty. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. And now to social media and big news on the Musk Twitter deal. According to the Washington Post, Twitter could be giving Elon Musk an enormous chunk of their data. This chunk of data is being called the fire hose. It's essentially an archive of all tweets on the platform. The archive also shows information such as the devices tweets are sent from, as well as information about the accounts that tweeted it. Musk's legal team says this data is essential for understanding the amount of spam and bot activity on the platform. Musk could analyze this data to find previously undetected information. According to top executives, Twitter is also anticipating a shareholder vote on the deal. It could come by early August. And now over to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. In the NBA tonight, the Celtics host the Warriors in Game 3 of the NBA Finals with a series tied at one game apiece. Boston took the opener after a shocking Golden State with a 40-point fourth-quarter performance that turned a 12-point deficit into a 12-point win. The Warriors had another double-digit lead after three quarters in Game 2, but this time cruised to victory. Golden State's Steph Curry has hit 12 threes so far in the series while scoring 62 points. However, Klay Thompson has yet to heat up, hitting just 10 of his 33 shots so far. Boston, meanwhile, hit 21 threes in the opener, including 10 combined from Al Horford and Marcus Smart. But the duo were held to just two points apiece last time out. In gymnastics, Olympic gold medal gymnast Simone Biles is one of approximately 90 women who said they were sexually assaulted by former Team USA sports doctor Larry Nasser. They're suing the FBI in excess of a billion dollars for failing to stop him after receiving allegations against him. Nasser pleaded guilty to 10 counts of first-degree criminal sexual conduct in 2018 and is scheduled to serve 40 to 175 years after his 60-year federal sentence for child pornography concludes. At his state hearing, more than 150 women offered statements about being abused by him. Last summer, the Justice Department's Inspector General, an internal watchdog, concluded that the FBI made errors in handling the case. Nasser was the athletic trainer for Team USA Gymnastics starting in 1986 until he left in 2015. After receiving allegations against him, the organization did their own internal review of Nasser and reported the allegations to the FBI's field office in Indianapolis. But the FBI didn't open an investigation or let federal or state authorities in Michigan know, according to the Inspector General's report. Team USA officials then followed up in May of 2016 with the Los Angeles FBI office after eight months of inactivity from agents in Indianapolis. 
At least 40 girls and women say they were molested by Nasser in a 14-month period after the FBI was notified. Nasser, who is also a Michigan State University sports doctor, was finally arrested in November of 2016 during an investigation by university police. The Justice Department announced last May that it will not pursue criminal charges against those former agents who failed to give complete or accurate responses during the Inspector General's investigation. One was fired, the other is retired. In the NFL, the Denver Broncos have been sold to a group headed by Walmart heir Rob Walton. ESPN is reporting that the agreed sale price is $4.65 billion, which would be a record for a North American sports franchise. With three Super Bowl wins, Denver has been one of the more successful franchises under former majority owner Pat Bowen. Bowen bought controlling interest of the team for $78 million back in 1984. He stepped away from the day-to-day -day operations of the team in 2014 with the onset of Alzheimer's disease. He died in 2019 and his interest in the team has been in a trust ever since. That's all for your sports news today. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Dave. And coming up, China's rainy season has begun with severe downpours wreaking havoc in the southern regions. But local authorities may be adding to the damage. And one woman is dead and dozens are injured after a driver hit a crowd in Berlin. Police said it's still unclear whether it was a deliberate act. That and more after the break. NTD's Capital Report. It's about getting answers. Cutting through the fog of politics. It's about your questions and our chances to ask. What is the net impact of the American Carson Graves? Thank you for joining us. We're speaking to those in power to find out what does this mean for the people. We're here so you are in the know. At The Nation Speaks, we don't just scratch the surface. We want to go wide and deep. Our viewers come away with a much richer understanding of the issues of the day. We really make a big effort to bring on different voices onto the show. We don't just talk to experts and newsmakers, which of course are extremely important, but we also want to hear from the American people. So the people who are impacted by the policies and issues that we're talking about, because what they have to say is just as important to the national conversation. Now to China, where flood season has begun. Since June, persistent rains in at least eight southern Chinese provinces have caused serious floods. Now bands of rain are shifting to the north. Here's more. Long-lasting downpours have caused major damage in regions of south China. The heavy rain led reservoirs to fill quickly and exceed flood warning levels. Guangxi province has seen some of the most severe flooding this year. Street signs there are underwater, with major traffic blockades happening because of it. Reports say more than 43,000 households lost power. But one citizen made an interesting observation, saying water levels in her area kept rising even after the rain stopped. She speculates that's because local authorities were releasing excess overflow from nearby reservoirs. In Guangdong, some villages saw similar problems. Authorities there reportedly didn't inform locals about a plan to release excess water from a reservoir. 
The move caused major flooding in lower-lying areas. Over in Zhejiang province, as many as 23 reservoirs exceeded warning levels as of Monday. Like in other areas, officials gave no notice before discharging excess water. One social media user revealed why authorities haven't been informing residents ahead of time. He said a local official told him that this way, authorities can avoid being forced to pay out compensation for damages. According to him, the official said, quote, when you inform residents about plans to discharge water, will they agree with it? They would demand compensation for crops, livestock, and other property damage, at least billions of dollars. But instead, the same residents would be grateful for bags of instant noodles from authorities if they believe the flood came from natural causes. In Fujian province, heavy rains have caused more than 10 landslides. More than nine inches of rainfall hit the region from Sunday through Tuesday. That water damaged over 320 sections of roadway and 210 acres of crops. Parts of Hunan province saw even more severe flooding, with water reaching a depth of two stories in some places. And in Shanghai, the city may be out of lockdown, but it seems residents' lives will not return to normal. A slew of virus restrictions are still in place. NTD's Don Ma has the story. The biggest headache for Shanghai residents is that authorities have made mandatory COVID tests a new normal and a permanent part of people's lives. The basic requirement now is doing a PCR test one day and a rapid antigen test another. There is a new saying that we are all living by PCR tests now. If you want to go to some indoor premises, you have to do the tests. Anyone who wants to use public transit or go to malls or parks needs to have proof of a negative PCR test within 72 hours. It's a big hassle for those who need to take the train or bus to work. They would have to take three tests each week. And adding to the inconvenience is that the lines are often very long. Yesterday when I went to work, there was a spot with not many people, but there are long lines at most of the spots. Someone complained that they had to wait for hours yesterday. Complaints flooded in on Chinese social media. It seems many Shanghai residents are against normalized virus testing. Some report waiting hours just to get tested and dozens more for the results to come out. One Shanghai local says doing tests so frequently is torture. Every day I have to make sure my nucleic acid results haven't expired. I can't work well because I have to check during the middle of my shift and the testing conflicts with working hours. It's too inconvenient. The issue became significant enough that a Shanghai official had to apologize to the people. He said that Shanghai will make testing more convenient. However, he didn't say that Shanghai will drop permanent virus testing altogether. Don Ma, NTD News. Over to Germany. Investigators are trying to determine whether a man deliberately drove a car into pedestrians in a popular Berlin shopping district, killing at least one person and injuring a dozen others. NTD's Joy Felix tells us more. A 29-year-old man drove his car into a crowd of people in Berlin on Wednesday, killing one person in a western district of the German capital popular with tourists and shoppers. Police identified the driver as a German-Armenian man. After his vehicle veered onto a pavement twice, it eventually crashed into a shop window. 
he was detained by bystanders and handed over to the authorities. Police said it was not yet clear whether it was an accident or a deliberate act. German media report eyewitnesses told them the driver appeared to intentionally target pedestrians. Bild newspaper said the person killed was a teacher who had been with a group of her school children. Officials say more than a dozen people were injured and five were in a life-threatening condition. Another three were seriously hurt. Scottish American actor John Barrowman was an eyewitness of the crash. It's really pretty bad, guys. Um, there's over where we are here, there's uh, a lot of police. There's a dead body in the middle of the road. And then over here, there is uh, all of the um, emergency services that are uh, trying to help victims and people. There's a lot of people walking uh, with limps and injuries. The car came down onto the pavement, then has come onto the road over there, has hit somebody, then has gone down the road and come back onto the pavement down that, down that way, and come back onto the pavement and gone through a bunch of people. A small silver Renault car was lodged inside a shop after smashing through a plate glass display. Blankets covered what appeared to be a body in a cordoned off area guarded by police. Rescue workers moved apparently conscious people on stretchers towards an ambulance. In Berlin, the incident triggered memories of a terrorist attack in December 2016 when a failed Tunisian asylum seeker with Islamic links plowed a truck into a Berlin Christmas market, killing 11 people. A memorial service is planned on Wednesday night at the nearby Karlsruhe Wilhelm Memorial Church, one of the German capital's best-known landmarks. Joy Felix, NTD News. And in the UK, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson faced members of Parliament for the first time after surviving a confidence vote on Monday. There was a mixed reaction from his own party as he arrived in the Commons. Meanwhile, the leader of the opposition party focused on the National Health Service, criticizing the government over long waiting lists. Here's NTD's Jane Wirrell with more. While Boris Johnson wasn't grilled on his leadership by his own MPs this time, there were moments of energy and drama in the chamber, with the Speaker of the House of Commons at one point telling people to calm down. We're building the foundations of our NHS's, our, our health services' future, and they should support it. Can I just say to both of you, you need to calm down, and there's two over here as well. The four of you could have a very nice cup of tea if you wish. Well, 148 of the MPs sitting behind the Prime Minister, of course, don't actually want him there. That's after, just two days ago, they voted that they have no confidence in him. Most of the attacks came from the opposition benches, with the Labour leader, Sir Keir Starmer, quoting Conservative MPs who have criticised Boris Johnson, and he also really put a focus on the NHS backlog. I've got a letter here to the Prime Minister from the Honourable Member from Hereford in South Herefordshire. He said, this is you, Prime Minister, under you the government seems to lack a sense of mission. It has a large majority but no long-term plan. Mr Speaker, the Prime Minister's Big Plan Act is so tired that even once loyal MPs don't believe him. And it's not just waiting for a GP. It's waiting for all NHS treatment. 
Boris Johnson remained defiant, listing the government's achievements. The biggest tutoring programme in history for young people, raising literacy and numeracy standards for 11-year-olds from 65% adequacy to 90%. That is the highest objective I think a government could achieve. Expanding home ownership for millions of people, yeah. as my right honourable friend uh, for Duluth and I will do, uh, for millions of people who currently don't have it. Cutting the costs of no, cutting the costs of business to make this the enterprise centre of Europe. That is our vision. Creating high-wage, high-skilled jobs for this country. And as for jobs, I'm going to get on with mine, and I hope he gets on with his. While Boris Johnson has survived the confidence vote, his challenges are far from over. Jane Worrell, NTD News, London. Coming up, NASA is planning a landmark rocket launch in Australia. It would mark the first time the space agency has launched rockets at a commercial facility outside the US. And meet Larry, the official resident cat of the UK Prime Minister at 10 Downing Street. He has lived there longer than most UK Prime Ministers. That and more in just a moment. NASA plans to launch rockets from northern Australia for scientific research within weeks. This marks the first time NASA has launched rockets from a commercial facility outside the U.S. That private spaceport is the Arnhem Space Centre, which is owned and operated by a company called Equatorial Launch Australia. About 75 NASA personnel will be in Australia for the event. During a media briefing in the city of Darwin on Wednesday, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese said he hoped the project would inspire young people. This is a really exciting uh, project. Uh, this is about not just uh, the uh, rocket launches itself, but it's about sending a message uh, to younger Australians and indeed Australians of any age who might be looking at, at retraining uh, for future careers of how important science is. Uh, we want uh, the next generation uh, to really look at STEM as part of Australia's future and uh, that's why uh, this is an important project. The NASA missions will investigate heliophysics, astrophysics and planetary science phenomena that can only be seen from the southern hemisphere. The launches will be the first by the US Space Agency from Australia since 1995. And further north, 10 Downing Street is the residence of the UK's Prime Minister. But do you know it's also the home of the UK's most famous cat? And he's lived there longer than most Prime Ministers. Let's take a look. 10 Downing Street's famous feline resident, Larry the Cat, was recruited by then Prime Minister David Cameron to solve a rat crisis. The rescue cat entered his new home in 2011 and has been a much-loved resident ever since. The government website says Larry spends his days greeting guests, inspecting security defenses and testing antique furniture for napping quality. His day-to-day -day responsibilities also include contemplating a solution to the mouse occupancy of the house. Larry's a former stray cat. He has been known to take a relaxed approach to his mousing duties. Larry has also been lapping up the attention of the international media. He has seen prime ministers come and go and has welcomed plenty of world leaders, including former President Trump. 
The last holder of Larry's office, a male cat called Humphrey, retired in 1997 and died in 2006. Downing Street staff, not British taxpayers, are picking up the costs of feeding Larry. Larry ruled the roost until late 2019 when UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson brought his rescue dog Dylan to 10 Downing Street. Larry's resilience and diligence in his role has earned a place in the hearts of the nation as Britain's favorite cat. His official position is called Chief Mouser to the Cabinet Office. A few fluffy friends there. Well, that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.